Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. Our second gospel reading is from the first chapter of Mark, verses 4 to 11. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up from out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved with you. I am well pleased. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks and praise for the gift of your word. We give you thanks and praise for this marvelous uh, vision of who and how you are. And we pray that uh, your spirit that descended on Jesus then would descend on us now uh, to root your word deep in our hearts and bring it to bloom in a way that blesses you and this world that you so love, in a way that nourishes us. Uh, Convict and comfort, and uh, we pray that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds, that they would be acceptable in your sight. And we pray in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So uh, as you've heard a number of times already, we are now in the season of Epiphany. Uh, Christmas is over and done with, and uh, we're moving on. And, and I confess that, uh, you know, this season can be kind of a letdown uh, compared to Christmas, but it's, but it's really important. Epiphany is the season of revealing, right? This is where we spend time learning what it's like, what it means to say that God comes among us. Epiphany focuses on on Jesus' ministry mostly. Um, you know, in our church, sometimes we say the Apostles' Creed, and the Apostles' Creed says that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, and then it jumps right to and suffered under Pontius Pilate, and as though like not much else happened in between. Um, but Epiphany gives us this opportunity to kind of sit in the in between space. Uh, to bear witness to what it means to say that the word that was with God and was God became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Now, this season reminds us that we don't get to keep Jesus just as a little baby lying quietly in the manger. In Epiphany, we remember that the little Lord Jesus grows up and makes a claim on us. He's going to start preaching soon, proclaiming that the kingdom of God is close enough to touch, 
uh, and calling us to repentance, or, or in the words of St. Paul, to be not conformed to the patterns of this world, to be, to, to be transformed so that we can get in on what God is doing. This is a season of, of revealing and repentance. Uh, we might even say revealing and revolution. That's what Epiphany is about. And this time around this year, in the lectionary, we're going to spend most of our time in the Gospel of Mark. And Mark, if you're familiar, you'll know he's not very big on details. <laughs> you know, there's a distinct lack of angels and shepherds in these opening verses. There's no Mary and Joseph. There's no stargazers from the east. There's no Bethlehem or Herod or manger. Mark gets right on with things. He, he's always in a rush to tell us some stuff. His favorite word is immediately. <laughs> Uh, but even though, you know, Mark skips the, the Christmas pageant, uh, he does manage, I think, in these first 11 verses to tell us everything we need to know about what's coming. He shows us both the revealing and the revolution. He shows us what it means to say that God has come impossibly among us and what it means for us and for this world. And I, I want to work backwards in what we read this morning. I, I want to start with the revealing. Where we, I, want to, I want to see Jesus sputtering up out of the, the murky waters of the River Jordan with the, the Spirit descending like a dove and this heavenly voice proclaiming divine, extravagant love over him. Now, right off the top, right from the get-go, uh, Mark gives us this image of the Trinity. Right, The, the Trinity is this doctrine that, that God's presence and action in the world is revealed in three distinct but inseparable ways as Father, Son, and Spirit. And he may not have explained it exactly as the church would come to understand this God who is three in one, uh, Trinity and unity and unity and Trinity, as one of the ancient creeds says uh, so poetically. It, it takes us a while to come up with the right words for this scene and, and for the way that God seems to be. But Long before we have uh, words and, and, and creeds and doctrines, we, we see from the get-go this one who comes among us is this communion of love and self-giving, this community of delight. Now, as Jesus stands dripping wet, we see the pleasure of God glistening in the sunlight. Now, from here on, whatever else we say, we say that Jesus is about the pleasure of God. God's good pleasure has come among us. That's the first thing that's revealed. And I think it really matters that we get that. You know, there, there are certain versions of Christianity, mostly the ones we see in TV shows and occasionally making headlines that do not maybe call the word pleasure to mind. And there are ways of understanding the church, uh, understanding what the church is about that seem a long way away from, from the joy of this baptismal moment. Now, the church is often portrayed in pop culture anyways as restrictive and manipulative and condemning, demanding that we shape up or ship out. And maybe we've earned that reputation. But, you know, Mark wants us to see that whatever God is up to in Jesus, it's first of all for the sake of God's pleasure in the world. The son did not come to condemn, but to save, not to damn, but to delight. If we don't start there, things, things tend to go sideways. Uh, but we don't always start there, though, do we? Be, and I think we don't start there because it never stops being a surprise that God's choice for us is rooted not in what we do or don't do, but simply in the free gift of God's good pleasure. I mean, we say that all the time in the church, but it's still 
so hard to believe. We're so used to having to prove ourselves. We spend most of our time being told that we mostly get what we deserve and we internalize that this is uh, this idea that this is how the world is, that this is the way things are, as if there's something woven into the fabric of the universe that makes our lives logical equations. You do this, you get that. And it offends us sometimes to think otherwise, to believe otherwise, especially if we have it pretty good. And then God comes among us in a way that we couldn't have expected and in a way we never could have earned. God comes among us in a way that insists that we don't work our way up, scaling some ladder of virtues, but God comes down even into the waters of baptism and heaven rejoices. It delights God to be found among sinner saints who have come out to John. You know, let's pay attention that the crowds that came to the Jordan River are not folks who think they're doing pretty good. These are folks who have come to confess their sins. These are people who know that all is not right in them and around them. And while we were still sinners, Jesus shows up. Jesus is not ashamed to be counted among us. He's not afraid of the mess that we've made. Jesus isn't afraid of your sin. His grace is so much more. He gets in the water with us, and God is well pleased by it. I mean, it's kind of shocking, really. Though though Mark does prepare us for the surprise, he, he tells us that Jesus saw the heavens torn apart. I'm not exactly sure what Jesus saw. But I bet dollars to donuts that Mark uses those words very intentionally because it echoes almost exactly this prayer that we heard way back in Advent from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 64, the prophet prays this desperate prayer that God would tear open the heavens and come down, would shake the mountains and light some holy fires and do something about the way things are. He, He prays that God would do things that we don't expect like when God chose a band of slaves and marched them out of Egypt to be a light to the nations and show the world what God's like. Isaiah is is hankering after another exodus, a, a fresh saving act of God, the renewal of God's people. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down and, and do things we don't expect again. And Mark says, in Jesus, Isaiah's prayer is answered. It's not what we expected, but it's infinitely more. God won't just shake empire or mountains and topple empires. God won't fix the world from a safe and heavenly distance. Instead, God gets up close and personal. God reveals how far God will go to love this world, to, to be for this world, to make this world new, to start a holy revolution and to call us into it. I want to think for a minute about what that means, or at least start to. And I think the first thing it means is that that John actually got it kind of wrong. And I think it's a little bit of good news that the prophet of God, the one tasked with preparing the way of the Lord, can be surprised by God. Feels like good news to me. And that's who John is, right? It's who he believed himself to be, and a whole bunch of people agree. And in case we're not sure, Mark tells us about John's clothes. And in a gospel that is not all that hung up on details, uh, prophetic fashion choices would seem like a strange detail to include. But we hear that he wore camel's hair and a leather belt. And this is more than standard issue wild-eyed wilderness prophet uniform. Uh, This is a hint. It's a clue. 
The only other person in scripture to be described this way is Elijah, who's described as a hairy man with a yellow bear with a leather belt. And, and, and everyone who flocked to the Jordan to see John uh, knew that another prophet, Malachi, had said that Elijah would appear to prepare the way for when God acts decisively in the world, that Elijah would show up when God's Messiah, the king after God's own heart, was coming. And I don't, I don't think that John is the reincarnation of Elijah. I don't think that's what Mark or Malachi meant, but, but this is some divine street theater, right? To let God's people know that God is on the move. And John is sent to prepare the way. And, and to come back to the point, even he is surprised by how God shows up. I mean, here's the thing I think he gets wrong. He says, there's one coming, and I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. And, and that may be true. You know, we are not worthy of the one who comes. I dare say that is true. We all sin and fall short of God's glory. But the thing is, as we've seen, Worthiness doesn't have anything to do with it. Jesus doesn't show up as the one who demands that we grovel before him. In, instead, he gets in the water with us. He identifies himself with us. And what's the most amazing thing about that is that in identifying himself with us, Jesus identifies us with himself. By insisting that God's heaven-tearing revolution starts where we are, not where he is. He makes it plain that we get to be in on what he's about. What John gets right is that somehow we are fit to be mixed up with, soaked and baptized in God's own spirit, who has burst out of heaven and into the world. The same spirit that overshadowed Mary is going to birth something in us. We are sufficient in our lives to be a part of this revolution that makes all things new. And I think there it's important to recognize that, that Jesus identifies himself with folks who are hungry for a new world, starving for a new way, thirsting for a fresh possibility. Everyone in the wilderness came there to repent, which let's remember means to go another direction, literally to come out of our minds, to see things a new way, to be not conformed but transformed. I think one of the troubling things about the gospel is that it really only makes sense if we're kind of tired of the way things are. And that's the good news that the way things are is not the way that they will always be. There's a reason that John was sent to make a fresh road for God on the move, to level mountains and raise up valleys. The, the, the way of Jesus doesn't stick to familiar roots. It's as unexpected as a path in the wilderness, as a river in the desert. It's the promise that God has torn open the heavens to do something we didn't expect. It's the promise that as God's good pleasure stands there, can you see him? God's good pleasure stands there glistening in the sunlight, surrounded by sinners and a surprise prophet, that a new world has already begun. And of course, it doesn't feel much like that these days. I think that's true. And I, I don't I don't really I feel like I have to, but I don't really want to talk much about what happened in Washington, D.C. this week, even though the world's kind of obsessed with it right now. I, I don't want to talk much too much about the fact that there were rallies in our city and across our country <laughs> cheering on the violence and racism that was on full and undeniable display in our city. 
I, I, I want to pay attention. I want to figure out how to respond to name it, to, or to, to call it out rather, and to resist it. But I don't want to talk too much about it because when I do, I tend to devolve into kind of self-righteousness. I forget that I'm supposed to be praying for my enemies in love. I get very self-satisfied. It's not pretty. And I don't want to, I don't want to not talk about it just because as a white middle-class straight man, that's kind of my privilege. My life isn't all that much different. I don't want to not talk about it because of that. But the main reason I don't want to talk about it is because I think we're called to something more interesting. I want to spend our energy on that. No, what happened last week is not new or revolutionary. In fact, it is predictable to the point of boring. A spectacle does not make something interesting. We are called to bear witness to something that is not just interesting, but is captivating. We're called to bear witness to the one who comes not to the places of power, but to the desperate and to the broken. Not to the righteous and the self-righteous, but to the unrighteous, to seek and save the lost. To those of us who are deeply aware that all is not right in and around us. And we're called to bear witness that that's where the revolution begins. Our task, by God's good pleasure and grace, is for another way, a different kind of testimony to how things are. You know, it's such an easy temptation, certainly an easy temptation for me, to decry the actions of others without offering another way. To say that's not Christianity without offering a different vision. And I think we have to keep listening to Mark and the other gospel writers, to the saints of every generation who have done the difficult work of living for the will and way of Jesus, of repenting for the sake of the kingdom in and around us, even in the face of ungodly opposition. And I often think of the G.K. Chesterton quote that the The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. And of course, just watching Jesus drip dry on the banks of the Jordan won't tell us everything we need to know about what that ideal looks like or what that kingdom is about. We're going to have to go with him through this season and beyond to live with him, to die with him and rise with him day by day if we want to know more about this world that God wants. But there are two things that we can know for sure if we want to get in on it. That it will be a marvelous surprise and that it will be breathtakingly good. So may we be ready in this season for the revealing and for the revolution in our lives and in the world today and every day. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Amen.